You're listening to the Journey to Impact Fireside Chat Series with Gino Borges, curator of the Poetry of Impact, a platform for supporting the collective inquiry into deep impact. As a part of the Poetry of Impact, the Journey to Impact podcast brings to life the ebb and flow inherent on the path of impact, illuminating the interior journey of the hearts and minds of today's top leaders in impact. Here, you'll hear the intimate stories of those who push forward to overcome self-limitations and societal barriers, to co-create a world where one day, all people and planet can thrive together. Hi, this is Gino Borges. I'm here with Linda Solomon Wood, an innovator, entrepreneur, and award-winning journalist, founder and editor-in-chief of the National Observer, CEO of Observer Media Group, and previously founded Vancouver Observer, and has led both publications to win Canada's top awards for public service, investigative journalism, and excellence in reporting. Thank you, Linda, and welcome. Thank you, Gina. Thanks for reading that long introduction. (laughs) For sure. Where are you calling in from today, Linda? I am calling in from Gastown in Vancouver, British Columbia, in Canada. Oh, nice. And just a I'm small story. I'm looking out story. the window. Yeah. Yeah. And people, I don't even know. You know, like the city trying to come look back to life and be normal and not quite there yet, but getting there. Yeah. Yeah. And um, have you spent any time on Cortez Island uh, this Lately? summer? Yeah. yeah, I was there for a month. Um, it was so great to be there. It was so great to get out of quarantine. I live in an apartment here. So you know, it's just amazing getting outside and just sitting by the ocean, watching the birds and the wildlife. I saw whales, dolphins. It was phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's one We're of really my... really lucky in BC. Yeah, okay. very lucky. And um, one of my family's favorite places. And I don't know if you ever, I don't know if you knew this, but our son was conceived on, on, on Cortez Island. Wow. Yeah. Well, I could see how that could happen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kind it's of pretty a, easy. Kind of a romantic place. It is a good, yeah. And, and I mean, it was, it was very close to Hague, Hague Lake, and we had a rental there. In fact, I think the rental was your old house. <laughs> I think it was, too. I'm remembering this now. That's so funny. That's really funny. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, it was beautiful. Yeah, beautiful place, you know. Nature's romantic when it's not being cruel. Yeah, for sure. It's and I mean, let's hear about, yeah. And I mean, you've done a lot of work in, in the environment, uh, in the environmental space. And, um, some of the stuff that I was reading about you, Linda, um, was that when you were dialing in your model for, um, the national observer, you realized that there was a big appetite for environmental journalism. And it just popped is like, why is that? I mean, why are people willing to um, to pay for environmental uh, journalism? Like, where's the vacuum? Where's the seeking from the, you know, from, from the reader for that kind of news? Well, to really answer that question, it kind of takes me back to, you know, the original inspiration for it, which really is, you know, like for me was moving from New York City to British Columbia and, you know, being so, you know, taken, just taken in by this whole ecosystem and, you know, the coast and the, the wildlife. And then also, not only that, but 
watching these really epic battles unfolding between people who just loved the land, loved nature, loved, you know, the places they were born, they grew up, that they had attached to, and that were under threat by, you know, major industrial projects of some kind. And at that point, you know, when I arrived here, I, I wasn't reporting on it, but I was watching. I, I was just like, they're going to build a pipeline from the oil sands, and they're going to push it straight through British Columbia to the coast, and they're going to take it through this area that was called the Great, that is called the Great Bear Rainforest, which is about as close to wilderness as you can get in this world today. And I was just like, as a journalist, looking at that, going, "Wow." That is an amazing story. And it was early on, it was before, you know, it was really just being treated as kind of a business story. But to me, it was a story about, again, you know, this sort of thing that happens. And I had seen it happen in other parts of the world and interview, you know, done part of my previous life as a journalist was interviewing um, women who really against huge odds were changing the world in Africa and India. And so I had seen these really epic battles before where, you know, people were really being moved off the land or, you know, losing places they loved to industry. So that was my original inspiration for it. And the only way I could find money for it was by going out and asking for it through Kickstarters. And that was where I learned that people would pay for it. And what I learned was they would pay for they would pay for it only the it being they they didn't it's not that they cared about the journalism, but they really cared about the issue, you know, and they were really it's like meeting people in that place where they're already ruminating on something and they're concerned about it and they're or they're inspired by it, but they're not seeing it out there in the media or you know in the public conversation, in the way that they are actually thinking about it and feeling it and experiencing it. So that was where I, you know, saw, well, people do want this coverage and they'll pay for a project like this. And that kind of got it all started. Yeah. And where does it go from, um, so you, you make the significant, um, time investment and um, financial investment in investigative journalism, which is like intensively um, longitudinal at times and deep. And then sometimes there's maybe nothing there. Um, how do you do it as a small organization to sort of manage these? Um, it's like, yes, this is a, this is a potential story, but how do you really know? Because where I'm going with this is that I think you're really dialed into how story can be, impact. And I think the impact space is, is, is starting to get there in understanding it. But if there's a lot of power in the story, in fact, the power of the story is probably bigger than the strategies and the tactics and all that stuff. Because if you get the framing right, you can start moving hearts and minds and souls and so forth. And I'm just wondering how you sort of navigate all of these sort of potential realities is like, gosh, I'm so darn passionate about this. And yet the, you know, the wheels of media still aren't able to sort of like get there. Yeah. Well, 
I think that by the time I've embarked on any of these projects and like fundraising projects or, you know, trying to get people to pay for something, I'm already pretty far into that story. Like I know there's a story there. Um, and, you know, one of the great things about the Kickstarter model is that they always asked for like, well, what are the challenges? How, you know, tell people how you might fail. And so like the how you might fail part was like, just like you say, like, well, we might not find something or it might get too scary. We might get attacked. We might, you know, we don't know what will happen. So, but on the other hand, like a story like the kind like that we started off on, which is really trying to tell the story of the impact of the industrial development and the oil sands on First Nations and on, you know, really trying to get into the heads of the oil workers themselves, some of whom are really young and, you know, going up to Fort McMurray, like you find a lot of really high powered, brilliant people. And they're very savvy about the world and they definitely understand the impact of the industry. But they also, you know, they have complicated views on things. It's not what we really wanted to get into where it, storytelling that wasn't black and white. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I want to just go back, dial back to circle back to something you said about story being at the heart of impact and like, you know, I think that was how we always approached it was that in these campaigns was telling people that really stories have the possibility of changing hearts and minds, you know, and it's not the lecturing, mm -hmm. you know, or the telling, it's the mm -hmm. showing. So that's the kind of journalism that I really believe in, you know, and, you know, back to like Hunter Thompson, gonzo journalism you know, where you're really right there on the ground and you're with people and you're really, you're really giving voice to other people's stories, but you're able to shape it in a way that can, you know, hit home for readers. And I mean, how do you know when like you are the channeler and you are a messenger as opposed to sort of like it being an ego potential, like leading with the ego? Like, I mean, how do you know mm -hmm. and dance with that dialectic of like who's leading what? That's a really interesting question. And I, just off the top of my head, like what I think of when you ask that is just how if you're really going to build your ego, like maybe journalism isn't the best place right now. <laughs> because, because it's just, a, you know, journalism is has been in so much turmoil and there's been so much, um, you know, particularly when I got into it, when I really started building Vancouver Observer, it was still a time when people would say, well, who cares about journalism? You know, like it took Trump to make people really get who cares about journalism and why you should care about journalism and how, how much it mattered. I think up until then, like really people took, journalists and journalism and free speech and everything that comes with that sort of like we're going to go out and we're going to bring back facts and we're going to pass those on to readers just took that for granted so I guess really ego in imposing your own kind of will on a story rather than just let it you know let people speak and really listen 
I think it's like everything, you know, it's like the best journalists are deep listeners and mm. how do you become a deep listener? I feel like in a lot of ways I was born that way because it's just always something I've kind of done. But uh, I also think it can be cultivated through meditation practices and, you know, through like, you know, just getting to know yourself better and learning how to get out of the way, Mm. learning how to be a witness and not a judge and really opening up a space for the person you're sitting across from or in today's moment zooming with (laughs) opening up a space for them to open up, you know, and creating a kind of trust. So all of those are really high level skills for journalism that don't really, that really do involve getting out of the way, not flashing. However, is it satisfying to see that in print and to see your name there? Yes. That's Mm -hmm. the ego rush. Sure. Sure. Is it exciting to win an award for it? Absolutely. Sure. Now you mentioned something about it. It's like, there's a difference between being an impact investor and an impact investigative journalist, because um, I never feel like my life is threatened. I mean, no one's ever called me um, and, or threatened me or send me any uh, threatening mail. But the reality is, is that the kind of journalism you're doing is confronting the momentum of the current Western civilization's paradigm, um, the uh, the matter obsessed type of economy that we have at all cost, um, the extractive economy, and no one lets go of power voluntarily for the most part. I mean, for the most part, that's sort of a general axiom that I think it's fair to say. Um, how do you? sort of live with that, uh, one, having children, and two, um, you know, uh, potentially being a woman, you're more at risk physically than uh, a man, but um, you're probably getting threatened, you know, mentally and cognitively and psychically as well. Just turn, you know, you're you're the first person I've interviewed who probably gets a recurring stream of like, uh, you know, nastiness. Uh, and because you're challenging the, you know, the dominant system to, to, to a large part. So, I mean, sort of take us into that world. Um, and I mean, how, and I mean, how you sort of. I'm not sure you want to come into that world with me because well, it's not a pleasant world. I only want to hear about it. I'm not coming into it, but I do <laughs> want to, what, yeah, what I'm really yeah. getting at is, is that, I mean, in some ways, I mean, you're doing missionary work where, I mean, you are going deep, deep into lands and places and ideological, um, you know, places that people usually don't travel and they don't because self-preservation tends to override, you know, my preference about being in the world. I prefer to be in the world, but I'm not going to put my body at risk for it. Yes. That is, again, that's a really deep question. And I'm I'm really, thank you for it. And um, I want to try to give it the, uh, the answer it deserves. Um, the, the, the fundamental thing that you're asking that I think is, is a, a question I've asked myself a lot is how far, is, why, how did I get here? How did it happen that I have, that I became, you know, at the lead of an organization that was going to take that kind of heat 
that was going to get death threats, that was going to have stalkers and, you know, um, troll, you know, really some, some really, really, we've had some very scary moments. Um, and I definitely did not mean for that to happen. And I'm not a particularly like, I certainly didn't start this journey as like one of the most courageous people in the world. You know, I would definitely have said, no, I'm not going to put my life on the line. I have kids, you know, I, of course I can't do that, but it's sort of, you know, like as I took more steps into this kind of reporting that we were doing, particularly from 2012 till I would say, you know, like really last year, um, it, it's just been, um, it, it has been something that it's kind of like once you start, it's hard to stop because you see, you know, you see that this needs to come out. Stories need to come out. Facts need to come out. Um, and fundamentally, I could not do this if I didn't live in Canada. That's that's really the simple answer. Mm. I I feel that Canada, even though people get really angry over some of this, you know, and um, there are threats online. There are you know weird just people do weird stuff, say weird stuff about me, about us online. I haven't. I've only once or twice really felt personally threatened and I can't talk about it because they were police situations, you know? So it's like the stuff that's the really big stuff in all of this is all kind of in that. I can't talk about it category. You know, there's been lawsuits that have been pretty scary and um, that seem to be backed by the oil industry. I can't prove that, but that's my strong hunch. And so I guess in the end, I feel like I try to protect myself. I try to keep the team really safe. And more recently, we just haven't had the resources to keep digging in that way. And we've kind of pulled back and we're more in a kind of safe zone right now, which is really great because I don't feel like, I feel like we need to take that on. You know, like I've taken that on for the last five years. Now somebody else can take it on. Like I know that this issue about, you know, climate change the kinds of threats to the environment, the kinds of threats to people health, people's health, and even the fascism that we see happening in the United States, that is not for one Linda Solomon Wood to solve. You know, I am too small. National Observer is too small. We aren't going to solve all that. So I feel like, I feel proud that we've done what we've done. And I'm open to seeing what we're able to do in the future. But we we may not ever do that kind of reporting again. I'm not sure. Mm. Mm. Now our work is very much focused on, you know, keeping climate change in the conversation, yeah. keeping facts 
about climate change, you know, in the public eye and also the government of Canada subscribes to National Observer. So we know that those facts are getting to the government, to policymakers. So it's more in-depth journalism than investigative journalism, I would say, in 2020. Well, on that topic of, um, you know, I mean, thanks for explaining that transition from where you started to where you're at now or the, or this five years or this half decade uh, journey from, um, from, uh, from, you know, those more daring endeavors to one now pivoting to what you think is needed, uh, for instance, with climate change and which, which brings up an interesting point. And because media is, Journalism, you know, the New York Times talks about it, and I mean, they and you still see them fall into this, or I think it's a trap. They do fact checking against people who are not playing the fact game; they're they're playing a narrative game yeah. as opposed mm-hmm. to a fact game. So, um, high achieving, highly educated, socially educated, institutionally educated people, uh, progressives tend to like love their facts. They love their science. They love their experts. They love their policy. Um, um, but uh, a lot of people don't live in that semiotic realm and they aren't moving according to that semiotic realm. And I feel like there's an ongoing outmaneuvering constantly happening because while the progressives love to say, follow the white papers and lead, let the experts lead and the scientize this and da, 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 da. I think they're missing an enormous point. It's almost as if they're going this way. And yet we almost need to sort of tilt this way because what the, uh, I don't know if this is the right term, but the climate deniers yeah. or the climate stallers, or basically we're just not able to get enough people to get enough momentum and there's still too many people on the sidelines or denying it to a large extent or can't be as active as we had hoped they would be in part because the referent has been separated from, or the symbol has been separated from the referent and the progressives operate from a semiotic realm to think the referent and the, and the symbol have to be attached. And if they're not, you're lying. And it's like, well, they don't even care in, in, in another context. So, Take me in, like, why Like, why is it difficult to sort of play the postmodern reframing narrative game outside of the fact-based world? Um, and to me, I feel like if you're in the story business, there can be stories seemingly like we don't have to be obsessed with the Cartesian model of facts. Um, and it, we really don't. I'd rather win the story than win the facts. And so... Help me understand why it's so difficult for for us folks in climate and are really really into this to really go in that direction to actually widen the scope of like treating and bringing more semiotic tools into our toolkit. Well, well, um, you've asked about journalism and the climate movement, so yes. I'm going to speak to I'm going to speak <laughs> to the journalism part. And I'm just going to say that, first of all, just remember that the New York Times is selling subscriptions, okay? So they, everything they do 
is geared towards selling a subscription. And that goes for all, pretty much every journalism organization. So the question is how far are they being pushed by that? Really far, okay? So I don't know. When I when I open the New York Times, I just see I see a lot of just screen, I would call it screen bait. They call it clickbait, but like screaming about Trump. You know, it's just like and it's just like this howl, you know, and it creates so much anxiety when I read it. Like, it's just like, ah, the world is just so messed up, you know, like, ah, and then like I go over to National Observer and I'm like, wait, no, the world's not messed up. <laughs> and I feel better because, and maybe that's Canada versus the United States, yeah. but I also think it's, I also think it's just an organization that has moved so far into, you know, like, success with the subscription model and really knows what sells and that's what sells right now. So mm. about the facts, I, I mean, I think that in the journalism world, there's tons of narrative without facts going on right now. Um, just like that comment, the story about the vaccination is going to be ready by November. Yeah. that the you know Center for Disease Control put out. Like, that story just got, it went out everywhere. And it just got, like, you know, there was no analysis. There was no pushback. There was no, here's what they say. But, you know, nobody really took the time. I didn't see any, not the New York Times, not the Washington Post, not CNN, not anybody do a deeper dive and challenge just just look at, like, you know, I'm just going, is that really true? You know, that's, wow, talk about a narrative. We're going to have a vaccine by election day. I'm just like, line them up to vote and vaccinate them while they're voting. But, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, Trump has clearly mastered the narrative here. Yeah. You know, and um, as to why progressives and the left and you know aren't as good as the republicans or the right uh well in canada i think that's not so true and i just think things are different here in the u.s i thought the democratic convention was really was great propaganda I loved it. I loved that propaganda. Like I, I just thought it was beautiful and I was moved by it. And then the Republican National Committee was just propaganda that I just hated. And I think that the America has rapidly moved into mega propaganda, like much more propaganda than facts. And that is about narrative. That is, you yeah. know, storytelling with with without any relationship to the facts. So yeah. I'm not saying that was true at the DNC because I think it was much more factual. But the RNC just had no relationship to facts at all. And that's now the except that's now the norm. So I think that we're really fucked with all I, I think this is really, really bad news for the whole idea of truth. Yep. And I think that without truth, you can't really have a common good, mm -hmm. you know, a public commons. Like, so I think this is very serious and much more serious than just whether different kinds of factions can, can be as good at doing it. Sure. You know, like, 
Um, where is this really going to take us? I don't know. Like I'm, you know, really thinking about that in terms of like the impact of what's going on in the U.S. on Canada, like the climate here. Like we're so lucky for what you know. Relative, you know, for me, everything's relative. That's how I look at the world. And so, you know, relative to the United States, Canada, Canada's a model of sanity and, you yeah. know, just good government. And civic kind of get better civic yeah, engagement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, do you think that there is, um, I mean, how did that, um, you know, our way of knowing our epistemology of North America, you know, Canada has, you know, had like you just explained has just sort of less militaristic with, with truth. And, and I mean, doesn't really seem to beat it up. Now I don't want to get involved in like what's truth, but what I'm, what I'm getting at here is, um, why are like, what are the drivers to this collective epistemology moving away from, from um, trusting um, enough of a conversation about facts and truth, even, even though the details of truth are always negotiable, right? But we often can say that if something is here, it's here. And, but yet right now we're moving away from that. And I guess where I'm going with this is, is that you have this really unique nexus. And I think there's something here is like, what is the connection between the money, the current epistemology, the way we come to know about things, um, and media? Um, and usually we often think about those as disparate sort of silos. And um, they might not be like, I mean, is, like, is there this just, convergence happening or just sort of maybe talk me through those dynamics of how are like what you see on your end. Okay. Can we simplify that question? Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was big. So you're asking about money, media, and the truth. Yeah. Like epistemology, the way we come to know things. So you're asking me like, how do I come to know it or how do how, we like, society come to know it? Yeah. How does society come to know it from your vantage point based on what you're seeing? Because you have a vantage point of seeing this and most people don't. I mean, most people mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. don't have a front seat in media. Mm -hmm. You have context of the moneyed world and mm -hmm. you know about, you know, the history of epistemology. You just, you, I mean, you know how, how discourse works. And I'm trying to, like most people don't have those three, three legs mm -hmm. of the stool. And I mean, mm -hmm. how, how does okay. all this work? Wow. Okay. <laughs> let me, let me try to dig into that. All right. So let's just start with, from my vantage point, mm -hmm. I believe that people do Lots and lots of people, like thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people probably, do want to know what is accurate and what is true. I do believe, I'm not going to get into a big conversation about the truth, but I am going to say that my position is we have, there are things called facts and there is things, there is a truth that without propaganda interfering, we would all agree on. Like I 
have on a blue dress. I am wearing glasses. You know, yeah. there's just certain fundamental truths, okay, that really cannot be debated. And a lot of the facts and the details that come forward in stories that are done well and adhere to journalistic practices contain those details that are true and that people would want to know about. They might be one per- person speaking their truth, but that's, you know, is about it. That's, that's true. So in terms of money and how, you know, where it, how it gets connected to that, I would just say that these hundreds of thousands of people are willing and eager to pay to find out the truth. And they also really have a deep hunger to find out particularly about corruption and particularly about, they really, I think, I would say the general public would really like to know about people that are defrauding them either financially or, you know, mentally defrauding them by telling them lies so that they can, you know, it still comes down to money. You know, why, why would a person, why, why would a company or a political organization or anybody lie, I mean, to get something? So I think the general public really likes it when mm. any organization will attack that problem in the take no prisoners approach. In other words, I don't care whether you're a liberal or for Canada, liberal or uh, NDP or conservative, we're looking for where there is fraud and corruption. And that's journalism at its best. And it has unbelievable value for society because really how else does that happen right now? But it's, you know, been, been really um, watered down because of, and now, you know, the bigger thing about money, because I think, you know, it's very much in the interest, very much in corporate interest to have a very weak journalism media in any country. And in some countries, you know, they're willing to go out and just arrest everybody or close it all down because they just don't want to be criticized. Because, or they don't, you know, or, you know, we've seen this in, um, a, you know, over the last few years, journalists who were really close to exposing fraud, you know, or corruption and, you know, really big, like in um, Eastern Europe that were murdered, you know. So the connection between money and truth is, you know, huge in, in that way. And then, in the more positive way, in the more positive way, I have been really amazed and moved and just, you know, it's been incredible over the years to watch from very, from all kinds of different sectors, people come forward and want to support the kind of journalism that we're doing. And, you know, we just literally wouldn't be here without those people. You know, so whether it is somebody that invests you know, buy shares in the company, which is part of how we're set up, or they donate to one of our projects, and we've had thousands and thousands of people donate, 
or a foundation that comes in and gets behind, you know, a kind of journalism that just wouldn't be able to, it wouldn't happen without their support. And for us, that has happened with um, First Nations Forward, sorry, First Nations coverage, indigenous, you know, coverage of, 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 of an angle about what's going on with indigenous people in Canada that was not in the mainstream of media, which was basically about where First Nations were stepping forward, where they were, they are, you know, producing amazing leaders, producing amazing solutions to climate and, you know, sort of water, solar, um, energy, energy, you know, solutions. And um, the mainstream media narrative was pretty much to portray first indigenous people in Canada as either victims of crime or as protesters. And, you know, it was very obvious to me that there was some, you know, I was just seeing some, a lot in BC, a lot of stories that were not that story. So that foundations came in. We had like 10 foundations who funded that over three years, that coverage. And, um, it was really amazing, you know, to be able to do that. So foundations have funded us on reporting on transition to the clean economy, to a cleaner economy, to coming out of COVID with a green stimulus package, and to um, clean water in Canada, climate integrity. So I think that, you know, Philanthropy has realized that it has a huge role to play now in journalism. And that's just, you know, really wonderful to see. And, and I think investors as well, and this is kind of an interesting part about it, a kind of impact investment that I've got, I've done two rounds, two or three rounds of investment for national observer and observer media group. And, we have, I think, 11 investors now. And I don't think I'm pretty, you know, a lot of them have told me <laughs> that, uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I never expect to see this money back because I'm always coming to them with reports and like, you know, here's where we are and, you know, we caught this close to profitability this year and, and uh-huh. they're just kind of going, oh, that's great, you know. But, and I do think in the end that they will, make their money back and much more. But that's not why they got into it. They really got into it. It was, it's like a form of philanthropic entrepreneurship, you know, or, or, or mm-hmm. entrepreneurial philanthropy where they didn't get, ta- you know, they were able to do it without getting a tax credit, but they never really expected to see the money back. But, but I look at a lot of other projects people throw their money at, you know, technology projects, like people will, companies, like people will just throw their hundreds of thousands of dollars into those investments and lose one after another and keep, keep investing in them for that big hope of the unicorn. And it's, you know, like it's so hard to raise money for journalism, but I think in the end that my company is going to do better than many of the investments that I've seen my friends invest in. I mean, not, you know, we're never going to be a unicorn. But I think that people are going to get a nice return on their investment someday. And Mm. 
So I, I'm not sure that answered your question. Oh, that's hopefully it answered other questions. What, I'm sorry. What, what's that, Linda? Hopefully, it answered other questions. No, it, it answered. You hit on every angle. I saved that toughest question. I didn't save it, but I, I, I know the toughest question was the last one. It's a, it's a complex, it's a complex one, and only one that I can ask you because you, you've, you've, you've had your feet in all of those boots uh, to some extent. Sometimes China wear, you know, um, sometimes a boot fits, sometimes it doesn't. But I know that you're at least trying to put your feet in those different boots and. Um, and so it's a very unique opportunity to be able to ask that and um, to be able to share, share that story with others. Um, you know, people can see themselves as part of those puzzles and uh, they can see how, I mean, they can be, um, you know, a part of this story as well. And also, you know, put forth their story with confidence. Uh, you know, one of the things is, is that uh, we need uh, more well-intentioned people putting their stories forward with confidence. It goes a long ways to inspiring in the invisible world. You know, inspiration works in mysterious ways. Um, mm -hmm. And though you may not hear from a lot of people that, that you've shaped, um, you know, that it's just, it works from the compounding effect. You know, we always talk mm -hmm. about compounding and in finance, but inspiration is compounding too. I mean, that's a very, yeah, uh, it, it has compounding returns, and especially those folks who have a very intrinsically wealthy story that is shared, shared in a nuanced, confident manner, it starts to compound in the space. And so, I mean, that's so. I mean, that's why we feel fortunate to have you here. So, thank you so much for for sharing your story, Linda. Well, thank you so much, Gino, for your wonderful questions. It's been great talking to you today. Thank you for listening to The Journey to Impact. If you enjoyed this episode, help us spread the word by subscribing to this series on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends on your favorite social media platform. For a preview of our previous or upcoming episodes, visit www.poetryofimpact.com. 